You're listening to the ILLA podcast, the online home of lectures and conversations hosted by the Institute for International Law and the Humanities at the Melbourne Law School. Hello and welcome to this ILLA festival of conversation or this conversation in the ILLA festival. Uh, I'd like to begin by acknowledging that I speak from and the law school is situated on the lands of the Rwandri people of the Kulin nations and that this land has been protected and cherished by elders past and present. For us, the acknowledgement is also important because it's an acknowledgement of custodianship and law. And as members of a law school and a university, we also have obligations which are uh, created and related to the situation we find ourselves in. And for today, the conversation, I'd like to welcome Professor Ray Gator. Um, our conversation is primarily going to be about war and ethical tragedy. But I'd like to introduce uh, Ray very briefly um, by way of the usual biographical list, but, but just very briefly, because Ray's biography is very long. He's a philosopher who has held positions of moral philosophy at King's College London and the Australian Catholic University, and now as a professorial fellow at Melbourne Law School and the Faculty of Arts at the University of Melbourne. And in these positions, uh, he's taken up uh, the work and practice partly as a traditional academic philosopher, but mostly or increase, increasingly as a public thinker. And so his writings, spread between works of philosophy such as good and evil, uh, an absolute conception, but also public philosophy such as a common humanity, thinking about love and truth and justice in the 90s. And then the extraordinary is a philosopher's dog, which is a reflection and engagement both on the philosopher's dog and on what it means to be a philosopher and what it means to live um, an aware creaturely life. But he's also written two important memoirs, Romulus, My Father, and After Romulus, which in many ways are models of what it means to have lived in Victoria since the 1950s, but also to have reflected on what it means to have done so. What we take up today is work which Ray has thought about and undertaken over the last 20 years, partly in the context of the Wednesday lectures, but mostly in conversation um, with many people about the international domain and war and genocide and torture. And what we thought would be useful to talk about really is to try and think carefully about two aspects of international life. And one of those is the way in which law, politics, and morality are answer answerable to ethical concerns, and in fact carry their own so generous ethical concerns. And the second element, the ethical tragedy element, is about how we understand our ethical responsibilities as being irreconcilable and how we live with the irreconcilability of our ethical obligations. So the talk we're going to have will take about 30 plus minutes, and then we're going to open up the conversation to the floor. Um, and roughly we've got three topics and three questions. Um, which fall partly into life, partly into the style of ethical thinking and then ethical tragedy. So to get going, Ray, um, when I've read your work, 
I've always been struck by your unwavering commitment to a sense of the preciousness of life and our responsibility to acknowledge and live well with our shared humanity. And this is something which is both a matter of yourself and your relation with others. But I've also been struck by the way that you go about thinking and talking about these responsibilities and the way that you do so as a writer and teller of stories. So perhaps we could begin briefly with a sort of ethical biography um, in the sense that your writing and reflection is closely tied to the way you live your life in the middle of events. Well, well, thank you uh, very much, Sean. And um, I, I, I really have to say that I'm very much an amateur in matters of law. Uh, in uh, wouldn't, I wouldn't even call myself a philosopher of law. I've, I've written on some uh, topics that um, I've been lucky enough to have Sean and Angie Avazi and, and Sandhya, uh, I, th I think, suggest to students in the law school. Uh, and um, I owe a lot to Gary Simpson for having me got there in the first place and to convince Michael Cromellan uh, uh, to take me on board as a professorial fellow and later to, to Carolyn and now to Pip uh, for my my presence there. But um, I, I am very much an amateur in this and I, I feel a bit nervous often talking about it. Um, but I, 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 I thought I'd uh, talk a little bit first about um, what I think about morality. Uh, uh, later on, I'll try to explain why I think morality is um, only one of the forms of the ethical. Uh, but for, uh, but and I, I, I want to talk a little biographically about this because I realised. Um, quite a lot, long time after, a few years after writing a memoir, uh, Romulus, My Father, uh, how much I'd learned uh, about uh, morality from him. And, and by that, I mean about the nature of morality, not just uh, how to live or what to do. It, it wasn't only a moral compass, but um, made me realise uh, some things about morality that I think are quite radical, things that philosophers would call meta-ethical uh, rather than just normative concerns. Uh, he, uh, but I have to say, uh, tell a little bit about the story of, of my life with my father uh, in, in order to explain what I want to explain. Uh, we, we, we came as migrants in 1950 uh, to Australia and my father was sent to central Victoria to work on a reservoir that was being built. Uh, and my mother uh, suffered from manic depression uh, and was uh, unable to look after me uh, very well. But it's a symptom of manic depression uh, often, anyway, to heighten uh, sexual desire. And she had affairs with a number of men, uh, one of whom, uh, in the end, was a very good friend of my father's. And she lived with him uh, and had two uh, daughters uh, with him, by him. Uh, they had a pretty desperate life together uh, and it led to his killing himself when he was 27 uh, and her killing herself uh, a couple of years later. Uh, during the period of their relationship, uh, my father was very generous in his support of them uh, uh, because of her manic depression. Uh, she often spent a lot. Uh, that's another uh, very common symptom of the illness. Uh, and so she might spend 20 pounds, as it was in those days, on a dress. Uh, and Mitchell was earning six pounds uh, uh, a week. Uh, and uh, therefore, they were often thrown out of their uh, places that they rented. They couldn't afford to buy a house. And my father often... Uh, Pay, help pay their rent. Uh, 
uh, for them, uh, much to um, the dismay and disdain, in fact, of a lot of his compatriots who were born, uh, who grew up in an honour culture, and their attitude was, for God's sake, you know, your wife goes off with another man, has another child with him, uh, and what do you do? You help pay the rent. Don't you have any sense of shame and honour? Uh, so, uh, uh, now, what I um, the reason my father did what he did was not because he had no sense of shame and no sense of honour, but because he was incapable of turning his back on what he perceived to be and what actually was their desperate need. Uh, and this was an expression of his compassion, but reflecting upon that later as a philosopher, I realised it wasn't just an emotion. Sorry, I shouldn't say just. I mean, it, it, the, the emphasis is not that he felt the emotion of compassion, but that he felt a moral necessity to respond to what he perceived as the meaning of their need and often the meaning of their humiliation as they are being thrown out from one place uh, to another. So I, I, I described compassion there as a, a, a necessitated responsiveness to an understanding of their need, a form of understanding uh, as much as uh, a form of feeling, or I would rather put it uh, as a form of understanding in which feeling and thought just couldn't be separated. Uh, so it's not so much that I want to contrast it with feeling, uh, but wanted to say this is this is this would be was for me an example. I mean, I only became to think about it in these ways, obviously, much later. Uh, but uh, uh, an example of the way in which feeling and thought combine as a form of the cognitive, a form of understanding. And in this case, the understanding was of what it meant for them to suffer as they did. He was the most compassionate man I've ever known in being responsive to need. The other thing, though, about him was that he was a morally very severe man, uh, which people who've read the book often take uh, to mean that he was a man of very high and sometimes rigid principle. Uh, I think I could say, perhaps without any exaggeration whatsoever, that he had no principles at all. <laughs> <laughs> right. Rather that he responded uh, as I to other situations, as he responded, in fact, uh, <laughs> to my mother. That is, uh, he, for him, the dominant modality was not obligation. The dominant modality was this is what I must do. How can I not do it? Which I think is different from obligation. Uh, for one thing, uh, uh, the difference is that. Uh, obligation can be stiff and resentful. You just feel I have to do my duty, you know. Uh, whereas it, it's it's not usually uh, taken to be a form of compassion. And indeed, in in the great philosopher of duty and obligation, Kant, it was contrasted very distinctly with with compassion. Uh, so, uh, so he was a morally severe man, but but, and the interesting thing in regard to my mother and to her lover, whose name was Mitra, uh, he 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 sorrowed uh, for not only the desperation of their plight, but for what he felt that they had morally become caught up in. I mean, he, 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 though he was morally severe, sorry, though he was uh, responded in, with a deeply compassionate, in a deeply compassionate way to their need, he was never inclined to deny that Mitchell had betrayed him as a friend uh, and that my mother had betrayed him as a wife. So he held these, these moral descriptions of their situation as descriptions intrinsic to what they were suffering, that she had become this woman 
and that Mitra had become this kind of man morally. But his response to that was not indignation, but sorrow for them. And so uh, I came to realize uh, that, that, uh, that um, being morally severe didn't entail being judgmental at all. Uh, so, and that was a very important lesson for me. Uh, and uh, later on, when I began to write moral philosophy, uh, I was constantly critical uh, of the tradition as being obsessed with praise and blame. You know, when students argue whether the will is free or whether it's not, they say, well, if the will is not free, how can we praise and blame people? As though, for God's sake, the most important thing <laughs> is to be able to praise and blame <laughs> especially blamed them they think what you know so so uh, there's a moral a deeply moralistic uh streak in moral philosophers understanding of the very nature of morality which is in some ways very legalistic because it's connected with the idea of necessarily being accountable or blameable for something yeah uh, and uh, it, it, I, 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 my, my, uh, my father, in one sense, held Mitchell and my mother to account in insisting that the descriptions, a, a betrayal of a friendship, a betrayal of a marriage, still held, but he didn't hold them to account in the sense of pointing fingers, turning his back. Uh, and so on. That was very different. So I've sometimes wanted to describe the most responsibility in its most basic sense as being holding someone fast to a moral understanding of what they have done, which is not necessarily blaming them. Uh, later, uh, when I began to to think, to think about uh, um, how, how I, what, what I'd learned from living with my father, and I became attracted to Greek tragedy. It was probably no accident that the, 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 the form of literature that most attracted me was Greek tragedy. And, of course, there's a great story of Oedipus. Uh, and now, uh, and it, it seems to me, if reading, reading the play, it's absolutely clear that Oedipus's response to what he's done is the response of remorse. And it's clear that the chorus pity Oedipus, not just because he's plucked out his eyes and unwittingly exiled himself from the kingdom, but for the wrongdoer that he had become, or in, in their eyes that he had become. And, but this is an, another example of holding someone to account through a severe pity. The chorus's lament for Oedipus is an expression of a severe pity that won't let him say, as he actually does in Oedipus the Colonus, oh, I didn't do it intentionally. Yeah. Uh, so this, so this is a, a, a very different way of thinking about. Um, the ethical, as you say, than the way lawyers are trained into thinking about morality as, as, a, as essentially um, a, parallel un, a parallel universe to law is just a moral tribunal as opposed to a legal tribunal. And thinking about morality is litigation um, by, by other means. So in the way that you frame things, um, the, the question of moral understanding and ethical responsiveness is not a, a question of a tribunal. It's a, it's a question which takes place in life. And as you've written as a philosopher, the realm of meaning. And this, perhaps you could say a little bit about how the, you understand the realm of meaning, because it's the realm of meaning which helps us, in a way, think into the ethical concerns of politics in a university sense, into the ethical concerns of politics and morality and all? Well, uh, 
Well, well, let's go back to the example of my father's uh, compassionate response to my mother's need and the need of her lover. Uh, again, when I came to think about this later as, as a moral philosopher, what struck me was the most impressive thing about this was not what he did, but the spirit in which he did it. Uh, and usually when people think about morality, they think about rules of conduct uh, uh, or norms of conduct, as, as, as they put it, and what kind of justification there might be, whether they're rationally justified or whether they're not. Uh, but it, 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 that for, for me, what mattered most was the spirit in which some, sorry, it became clear to me that the spirit in which something was done could be as important as what was actually done. The people agree on what to do, but do it in radically different spirits and that would make all the difference to the moral character of, of the deed. And, and, and that, that, I thought, could often be captured, and we often captured it, captured it in life by saying, don't you understand the meaning of what it, what, what you're doing, don't you understand the meaning of what it is for this person to be humiliated? As, as um, This was, again, the case of my father, understanding how deeply humiliated uh, my mother and, and Mitchell were. And also, when Mitchell killed himself, there were many reasons for this, but part of it had to do with the remorse that he felt having done what he had done. And so in quite a, in a lot of my work, when I began to think about morality and I began to think, let's, let's, let's take the emphasis away from questions about rational justifications for what we do, uh, but think about the kind of seriousness morality can have in a life, the kind of weight it can have. And I thought, well, where, what, 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 are, what are the most sober, most serious moments of the moral life? Well, remorse is certainly one of them. And in the case of remorse, I began to think of remorse not so much as an emotional response to a concept, to uh, the sense that one had done wrong, but a kind of incredulous understanding of what it meant to have done, done it. Yeah. Because the characteristic expressions of remorse are not shit how bad I feel about this. The most characteristic expressions of remorse is, my God, what have I done? How, how, how could I have done such a thing? Expressions of a, an awakened sense of the meaning of what one has done, what it means for oneself, and what and and inseparably from what it means for oneself, what it means for the person one who's wrong, the two just come together inseparably, except when remorse is corrupted and becomes self-indulgent, and you think more about yourself, and someone can rightly say, for God's sake, you know, well, I know it's a terrible thing to become the kind of person you become by virtue of doing this, but what about the person you're wrong? So, uh, so, but there again, there was a, there was the sense of the meaning of what one had done, and and I began to think, how should we think about meaning here? And and then something obvious struck me, which is which is we often turn to literature to to when when someone asks, can't you see the meaning of what one done? Than what one what you've done, then often they turn to literature or to descriptions of what they've done, which are very much in a literary mode, and can then also be criticised by reference to concepts that are often used in literature, and so someone might say, "Stop having such a sentimental view about what you're doing. Stop being so kitschy about what you're doing." Don't you have, I'm here to take one of Gary Simpson's favourite expressions, are you so tone deaf to irony that you can't see, and, and so on. So these are literary type of expressions. And I began to wonder, given how often we use these categories in life, you come out of a film and you say, 
God, I, I, I was so moved by what, what I saw uh, there. I've come to understand something I never understood before. Or someone says something in a particular tone and you say, I've heard these words many times before, but I've never understood fully what, it, what they mean and, uh, and so on. But then someone might say, yeah, that's true. You think that, but that's because you're so sentimental or you were so taken in by the background music of this film that you... Uh, now, that, that, that criticism might be right or might not be, might, not, might not be right. But the point is, it's an appropriate, these are appropriate concepts to come into such a discussion, which is a discussion about how you understand things, not how you feel about things. Because the claim is, I now understand something that I hadn't before, or more deeply than I, it's a cognitive yeah. claim. And the criticism is, is not of your feeling, right? But uh, so, you know, I began to wonder, well, why isn't this being discussed? Because ever since Socrates, the, the, there's been a big preoccupation about what is it to be properly persuaded by something. There's famous criticism of the orators who would move you in the wrong kind of way. And this is obviously relevant to law because, <laughs> because uh, you know, barristers are often uh, accused of being like this. Uh, so, and, and, and then it occurred to me there's a, a very simple answer to this, which is the philosophers have assumed when they're discussing moral objectivity, whether moral judgments can be true or whether they can be false and so on, they assume that the criticism this is sentimental, is effectively the criticism you're, 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 you're being cognitively misled by your emotions. Uh, and, and so they think there's a, they have a conception here of the cognitive, which is such that it can be thrown off course by all sorts of things. You have a headache, so you can't think very well. You're drunk, and you can't think very well. You're sentimental. You can't think. They think it's all the same kind of thing. That is, that the criticism, this is sentimental, or you're given to pathos, is a way of saying there's a psychological cause of a cognitive disablement. And we can characterise the form of the cognitive independently of the fact that it's been disabled in this way. Yeah. Now, if you think of a mathematical proof, for example, as a simple example, uh, and someone gets it wrong because they've got a headache, you can characterise what it is for, for, some, for a mathematical proof to be a cognitive, uh, a, a cognitive matter without reference to the fact that there were creatures who have headaches. It's the same with the concept of a fact. Uh, someone thinks badly about the facts because their vanity is moving them or whatever it is. And you, but you can still have the concept of a fact without, without reference to the fact that we're creatures who are, who are subject to vanity or headaches or whatever it is. Yeah. And even hope that we could be creatures who get, could be rid of all these things. But I want to say, if you think, let's say, of poetry, and you, you, every good poet tries to avoid sentimentality, kitsch, et cetera, et cetera. But the idea that a, a poet could wish himself or herself to be free of an idiom in which they're vulnerable to sentimentality would be for them to wish themselves free of the idiom, the only idiom in which they can write poetry. Yeah. And so I've wanted to say we should think of sentimentality not as a cause of cognitive disablement, but as a form of it. And that it, and that 
concepts like sentimentality, a disposition to pathos, mark out a distinctive cognitive realm, a distinctive form of the discursive. I used to think of it as, uh, as something opposed to the discursive, but it's better to think of it as a form of the discursive and therefore relevant to any kind of writing in which ethical matters uh, are, are central. So in, in, in that presentation, in a sense, the, the call to seriousness is also a call to language and a, a call to attention to uh, how it is you judge and judge well. Yeah. So maybe that's, there's a linking point here, in a sense, to, to work for law and international law, because while many people... Um, might hear that that language of judgment as being um, an individual activity. One of the more striking things about the way you've engaged law and international law is to insist that the realm of the ethical encompasses the political and the legal and not just morality. So that one of the ways in which you talk about um, politics and talk about international law is, is to note that these are domains which have their own ethical um, responses and responsibilities. And um, perhaps we could sort of enter the, the domain of the international in thinking a little bit about how you've, you've addressed the questions of war and torture um, as an aspect of um, ethically serious uh, understanding. Yes, I, could I just say something, though, about uh, um, what you've identified as the call to seriousness, which is something that, that, which is an expression I do use, which I think is fundamental to the concept of conversation. Uh, um, that, I mean, conversation can be about all sorts of matters, but I think it's, it's intrinsic to conversation in what I've sometimes called the loaded sense of the term, where you might say, last someone, someone really to talk to, or what happens when, let's say, after a tense <laughs> uh, text exchange, a couple might say, now it's time really to talk, serious. That, that this call, what I've called a call to seriousness, is... Uh, uh, is 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 a call to a kind of individuated response for someone to speak out of their life, to find their voice, and to speak out of a history that has made them, and 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 the idea that this is a call to an individuated responsiveness is is quite important, and it connects. Uh, I, I was thinking of it when I was reading. And I always forget how to pronounce her name, but I'll, I'll try it. Uh, Naz Mod, Modir Zadeh, is that how you pronounce it? And uh, in, a, in a, a paper called Cut These Words, Passion and in International Law of Law Scholarship, where she talks about finding a voice and so on. And what I was saying there connects very much with with that discussion of, of hers. But uh, in, in, in relation to, uh, to, 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 to morality and ethics, I, I, I think of morality as a form of the ethical. There's no agreed way of distinguishing ethics and morality. I mean, there's, there's a, a whole history of complex discussion. But, if, if, but the best way is to look at examples. I think of love as a form of the ethical. And the reason I do is not because necessarily morality is involved in it, but because it, there are standards intrinsic to love according to which we call something real love as opposed to infatuation or real love as opposed to a form of self-indulgence and so on. And these are standards intrinsic to the concept itself, not brought out, brought in from outside. And those standards might conflict with morality, actually. Um, and the Socratic injunction that um, the unexamined life is not a life worthy of a human being 
it's, it strikes me as naturally being called an ethical imperative to a kind of lucidity. But the failure to rise to that, to lead a completely thoughtless life, uh, is not an immoral thing to do, might be superficial but, and, and an ethical failing, but not naturally described as a moral one. So it seems to me that, that there are lots of examples in which one might say that morality is one form of the ethical. Now, I, I began, uh, 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 I had never thought of law as a distinctive form of the ethical. I'd always thought of law as basically a kind of instrument to regulate our interests and so on. And insofar as it was more than that, it was because morality had stepped in, as it were, into law and made it something more than just an instrument to reconcile our many conflicting interests or something like that. Until I read Jeremy Waldron's paper on torture, and I, if I if I might quote the the bit that that um, that that I, I'm uh, that matters to me. He says, uh, it's dispiriting as well as shameful to have to turn our attention to this issue. I want to place a particular emphasis on the fact that these efforts to modify the prohibition on torture are undertaken by lawyers. Sure, our primary objections to torture ought to be articulated in regard to the immediate situation of those who are going to suffer the treatment that Dershowitz, Bybee, and you appear to condone. But the defense of torture is also shocking as a jurisprudential matter. That view, that views and proposals like these should be voiced by scholars who have devoted their lives to the law, to the study of the rule of law, and to the education of future generations of lawyers is a matter of dishonor for our profession. Reading the memoranda, memoranda of Judge Bybee and Professor Yu and the muted proposal of Professor Dershowitz shook my faith in the integrity of the community of American jurors. And Naz, who I mentioned before, has something in a similar kind of tone. She's, she's been complaining about the way people now write about the laws of war. As, as compared to how people did in the Vietnam period. And she, her ends, she ends her piece by saying, ultimately what I felt in reading international law for scholarship and participating in professional academic workshops during the ongoing Syrian war was that we should be ashamed of ourselves. I felt that we would not have been comfortable presenting our arguments to a room full of Syrians or to a room full of young American soldiers. We would have been embarrassed to take our PowerPoints and our acronyms and tell a group of people affected by the war that what we were focused on began with an abstract and convoluted notion of self-defense, et cetera, et cetera. Now, now what, what struck me as interesting about these uh, passages is that although they're obviously connected with moral concerns, right, uh, absolutely obviously in the case of torture, uh, uh, is, is that these are expressions of, 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 a, of shame, which is not moral shame, but, but, but it would under-describe under it to say it's professional. Uh, it's, it's the idea that a vocation has been betrayed. Uh, and though the betrayal has to do with moral matters, uh, that is breaking people's will, as you, as as Aldrin would say, and the moral terribleness of torture. What he's there expresses is shame at people who betrayed a vocation, and and I've thought of that. I thought this was this was uh, an ethic um, shame at the betrayal of an ethical dimension distinctive to law. Morality is connected to it, of course. It's not as though it excludes morality. But it's not as though the ethical dimension of that expression of shame on her part and, and on his part is 
reducible to morality. And so I, 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 I thought in, in, in the case of torture, there was obviously the moral objection to torture. But I thought someone, someone might argue like this. Someone might say, look, I think, I believe that torture is morally justified, perhaps even morally necessitated. You might be a consequentialist uh, and argue just this point. But you might say, nonetheless, it ought legally not be permitted. Not because if it's legally permitted, we would be on a slippery slope, uh, but because it would be an offence against th the distinctive ethical dimensions, the distinctive dignity of law as expressed by Waldron and Nels. So, the, the, but that person could also be a politician who might say, I believe that torture is under all circumstances morally unjustified. I believe that it's also legally not to be permitted for the kinds of reasons that Waldron expresses, not because of a fear of corrupting our institu other institutions and so on. But as a politician, I believe it's my distinctive responsibility in these circumstances to order the torture. Now, I think those, well, I, I think that the, the, the situations in which an appeal to the distinctive imperatives of a political vocation to go both against law and morality can only be in circumstances where the distinctive life of a people is under threat. Uh, whereas in torture, what was under threat, I, I know this sounds trivial, is just lives. And I often, when in my writing against torture, I deplored the fact that our leaders could think that we are so cowardly, you know, that for the small risk to our lives, we were prepared to overturn some of the values we most cherished. Uh, so, uh, it, um, so, uh, but I want to make that clear. But I just wanted to say that this, this, this is how the different forms of the ethical could be expressed. Morally, it's unjustified. Legally, it's it should not be done for the distinctive reasons of a kind that, that Walton expressed, but it's the distinctive responsibilities of a political vocation to go, to go against law and to go against morality. Yeah, I think, Ray, maybe that's the point we can... We stop, yeah. Tie it, we tied it together very neatly there and travelled quite a long way uh, for that, but it would be good to open up... Um, to the floor if anybody wants to add to the conversation at this point. Um, you can raise a hand figuratively or literally, depending on how the spirit takes you, or just butt in. John. Yeah, thanks very much both. Can I just press the, the point about being non-judgmental? Um, clearly a difficult thing to achieve I, I i'm fairly convinced that it's a difficult thing to achieve um i mean if you use a phrase like the unexamined life i don't know what that is if it's not judgmental is it an objective reading of a fact i i find it hard to see that we really can avoid being judgmental isn't it more a case of taking responsibility for the judgments that we make and deploy against other people question mark mm. well I, th I, I think there are two senses of, of judgment here uh, one, one, one is um, uh, that you make a judgment that a certain category applies for example and so I emphasise in the case of my father's uh, 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 response to my mother and to his friend Mitchell, 
that, that he certainly made the judgment that the concept of betrayal applied here uh, in both cases. Uh, so so that, that's one sense of judgment. And of course, uh, it can be severe, uh, a severe judgment. Uh, and, this, and the severity in this case is moral, moral severity. So in that sense of judgment, it's, it's uh, so, so in that sense, it's a judgment. Uh, or it's also uh, a judgment in the mode of its severity. That is, it's saying the circumstances might be such and such, but nonetheless, this description remains. And I'm holding, we, we these days say, call it out, but, but I really, but you're saying, look, we, we can't have an honest relationship here if we try to evade the fact. Sorry, I shouldn't say fact because I don't think it's a factual judgment. But, uh, 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 but if we try to evade that this is the salient description now under which we relate. So in that sense, it's also judgment. But when I say it's not judgmental, uh, it's it, uh, judgmental usually implies that you stand high and above, you point a finger, you might be prepared to turn them away or to say you should be ostracized, never, uh, you know, never darken my door again and all these sorts of things. But there was, there was nothing of that tone in my, fa in my father's, in, let's put it this way, insistence that if the relationship is to be truthful, we have to hold these moral descriptions firmly in view. So, so in that sense, it's not judgmental. I should have perhaps said judgmental in the pejorative sense of that term. Thank you, John. I've got questions from Sandhya and then Anne. Thank you so much, both of you. Can you hear me? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, Ray, I am very persuaded by the idea of the distinctive responsibilities of a political vocation or of a, a legal vocation. And um, I'm sure you know that uh, Sean and I and other legal theory teachers invite students to take up some sense of those responsibilities. But I want to offer you a provocation of a kind that we've encountered with each other before, which is... How do you understand um, those responsibilities in the context of an encounter with the other? So, for example, in the, um, and you touch on this a little bit in the chapter that you wrote for the book, Who's Afraid of International Law? So if an understanding of morality is involved in the spirit in which something is done, but the spirit in which it is done is grounded in um, an albeit well-intentioned racism about an inability to recognise the humanity, for example, of a non-white person, which, which many historical activities of international lawyers have been and in fact possibly continue to be. What do we do then with understanding the obligations the professional vocation or that the legal vocation carry then if the how do we judge that cont which is which may be which may be carried out in a spirit of uh, good intention but grounded in the way that racism can often be grounded in good intentions yeah well i i i, I think it's i I can't remember, but I think it is, in fact, in one of the my contributions to that, uh, where um, I, I point out that there, there's a kind of a bitter irony uh, in um, uh, the uh, UN forty-six UN resolution on genocide, where it described genocide as a, an offence to the conscience. Of, of of mankind 
and an offence to all, to civil all civilized countries, while at the same time, it was clear that the, you know that the European uh, uh, founders of, of that era of international law uh, failed failed to see the humanity. Uh, of the majority of the peoples of the earth who'd in fact been often victims of colonial genocide fail, fail to see uh, that there were beings who could have a conscience, who had any depth of understanding, any depth of inner life to, to, to have a conscience that could be shocked in the way that the Declaration claimed that the... And um, but uh, when you ask what 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 what's what what's to do, the only thing one well I, well I shouldn't say it's the only thing, but but the first thing, as people who in our position who rise and so on, is is to keep pointing out uh, the, the 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 many ways. In which that failure to see what one is doing, uh, you know, the failure. Well, well, it's often been identified these days under the concept of systemic racism and so on. That is that you can be guilty in all sorts of ways of of, of racist conduct while while protesting most sincerely uh, that you're not. Uh, so I, I mean that I, I, I take it that the concept of systemic racism is in part an explanatory category to to, uh, to say how let's say someone like Malcolm Turnbull uh, could have been so disdainfully dismissive, dismissive of of the plea of a voice <coughs> to Parliament. And, and I think it's probably true to say that at, at, at one level, uh, Turnbull is not a racist. If someone said, did you think Turnbull's a racist? I think most people will say no. And he would certainly most sincerely say no. But, but if you ask, how, how can we explain that he could have acted like that? Then it looks as though the concept of racism just has to come into the explanation. And then not as a psychological concept. It, it's not a matter of, of probing more deeply into his unconscious, sending him off to a psychoanalysis, a psychoanalyst, for example. Thank you. Thank you. And did you have a short question? Um, it may be a short question or not too short. So first of all, Ray, I would like to say thank you so much. It's always a, a genuine pleasure um, to listen to you and I've been actually having your voice in my head a lot this week because I'm uh, teaching an undergraduate subject and where our topic for the week this week is Mabo was public trial and I was annotating the Mabo extracts yesterday for undergrads to say look just as Brennan's saying this here and look at the shift in language there and I find now it's inseparable for me to think about those passages and the language used in that judgment without thinking about you actually and I just wanted to maybe return to the start of this conversation about you as philosopher and that particular moment in time in Australia where those judges were, in your language just listening now, giving us a radical reckoning of what needed to be done and to pop properly persuade as judgment rather than to think about um, what it is to be judgmental. But you obviously, um, it's a bit of the... Um, so really, it's a comment more than a question, really, but that you made a decision or did you make a decision at that particular point of time to start thinking about law as a distinct form of the ethical because there was a need for the beyond the court for people to be properly persuaded? I, 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 think, I, I, I think I was halfway to recognising that because one, one, one of the things I wanted to bring out in my piece on, on Marbo uh, was, was that 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 uh, I, I I thought um, it was the recognition of the full humanity of the Aboriginal peoples 
and that I wanted to say in that piece on Mabo that one of the reasons that the land could have appeared terra nullius was not because of Lockean theories of property, etc., cetera, uh, but, but because it was uh, the white settlers found it unintelligible that the Aboriginal peoples could have had any relation of depth to the land uh, such that their movement from the land would be a laceration of the deepest kind to their being, that the white settlers found this unintelligible. And it had nothing to do with locking theories of property. It was a feature of racism not to see that the victims of one's denigration had the capacity for any depth of inner, inner life and feeling. And, and But it was for that reason that I wanted to say that it's no exaggeration to say that just that that Mabo was an expression of the recognition of the full humanity of the Aboriginal peoples. And if you also take it as the, the doing of justice or, or an, an act of justice, which is natural to take, take it, that this was now, now justice being done, then it was then there was a conception of justice, which was much deeper than justice as fairness, but justice as the recognition of the humanity of one's fellow fellow being. But I still thought of that essentially as morality. Right? I, I, I thought, okay, so here's morality, giving dignity to the law. And it was only later that I came to think, no, no, this, as, as I put it, this was, a, 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 although, of course, justice is also a moral concept, in this case, it was operating also as an expression of the distinctive ethical character of law. Just, to just as it has been in another example that has been so fundamental to my thinking, uh, when Moshe Landau said in the Eichmann trial that justice, the trial had one purpose, and that was one purpose only, and that was to do justice. And that had so many dimensions to it. It meant justice to the victims. It says we have to be careful because the whole thing can be buckered up if we don't follow the proper procedures of the court. It had that dimension. But it had that other astonishing dimension, which was justice is owed to this man, Eichmann, despite the fact that he, there was no doubt about the terrible evil of his deeds. He was completely unremorseful, completely unremorseful. And it looked as though there was nowhere in him where remorse might grow. There was a, there's a wonderful film. Um, I'm, I'm afraid we're going to have to but, yeah, um, stop, stop you in full flow on remorse um, yeah. and the passing of time, I'm afraid. But, <laughs> um, thank, Ray, thank you very much for taking time to talk to us, as you, as you have done for many years now, um, both as a... Um, professorial fellow at, in the law school, but also at the University of Melbourne and more generally. Um, and your thought and your uh, invitation to, to thought has been deeply um, affecting, has affected deeply many of the engagements we take on at ILA over the last years. Um, so perhaps we can do a pastiche of applause and thanks in some kind of way and show show hands <laughs> in various in various Thank forms, you, your claps, whatever. Um, so moving. But, but let me just say how honoured I am, truly, uh, to have been invited to this and to be part of ILA, with, that I, I have such admiration for. And we hope we can continue the conversation on. Um, at this point, we have to end the session. Um, I'd like to thank, before I go, uh, Annabelle Donkin for doing the setup and the recording and everything else which makes it happen. And to thank Ray and to thank Sandhya as um, director of ILA. Sorry, I've forgotten 
forgotten your office for a second. Um, <laughs> and with that, thank you all for turning up and giving up Tuesday. I hope, I hope you enjoyed it and I hope we can continue on the conversation at a future date. You've been listening to the ILLA podcast. To find out more, go to soundcloud.com forward slash ILLA podcast. That's double I-L-A-H podcast.